0: And as always, let us begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this night and for this time together. We thank you for this book and for the wisdom that it contains about what it means to live not as a citizen just of this world, but to understand our primary citizenship is in your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to set aside the other things that we've been preoccupied with today. And that you would open our hearts to hear your word, that your Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance those things that are important for each one of us. And that as we look tonight at the topic of faith, that you would use this time to increase our faith, that we might grow more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I am delighted to see y'all, and I am excited about this chapter actually two chapters tonight on faith. And as always, I wanna begin with our verse from 2 Peter, uh, which has so much to do with the whole theme of this book of following Jesus and understanding the Christian faith. So I would invite you uh, to say this with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, his divine power, And we certainly see that there's plenty of corruption in the world and there are plenty of people striving with all of their different desires. And this is such a reminder that God has already given us as Christians all things that pertain to life and godliness. So that is uh, good news. So I want to welcome any newcomers that we have. They're newcomers each week, either on the Zoom or on the YouTube or on the podcast. And just a quick word about how to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you don't really do anything, that you kind of come and tune in when you feel like it. Uh, you may be doing something else and listening in the background uh, as you chop your onions, whatever it might be. Uh, It's all good, you don't have to read anything, you don't have to do anything, we're just glad to have you along for the ride. Or you can snorkel, which means that you are here and you pay particular attention only to those things that you find especially interesting. And that is just fine as well. So for example, if you really found hope and charity to be interesting, which we talked about last week, and you were snorkeling, you could go and read those handouts that were in the email um, from Lewis's The Weight of Glory and from The Last Battle, the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia and get a richer understanding of those things. Uh, If you are a scuba diver, that means that you come and you are here in class and you read the book and you read the other books that I recommend, and you watch the movies and follow the YouTube links and think about the music and all of that. And I don't know if there's anyone that's actually doing that, but uh, I'm doing it and it is so much fun. So uh, I invite you if you think you might wanna be a scuba diver uh, to come right on ahead and join us in that uh, process of going down the rabbit hole with all those things. So also just a word about how to read this book. Um, Some people, if you're joining us just for the first time, uh, we are finishing up book three. There are four books within Mere Christianity. And I would just encourage you to take them at your own pace. Uh, Try reading each chapter out loud. Read only one chapter at a time and give yourself a couple of days in between uh, because it is very dense material. Um, about big concepts and particularly, if you wanna give the Holy Spirit time to um, lead you into all truth, uh, you need to take a little break every now and then just to be able to absorb it. And then also just a reminder that the C.S. Lewis Doodle is a great resource for many of these chapters uh, to be able to understand a little more deeply what's going on. So I'm gonna try something a little bit different. Uh, with trying to play the music tonight. It seems that we often have failures in this. So we'll see uh, whether this works or not. If you think you know what this music is, assuming that you can actually hear it, of course, if you think you know what it is, um, send me a chat. This is a little obscure, but every time I think it's too obscure for anyone to know, very often somebody pulls it out of the hat. So here goes, we'll see if it comes on. Oh, there's a big giveaway right there. Anybody that could read that small print or who recognizes it um, could send me a chat, or you can just be stumped. Okay, so. Uh, What that was, let's see if somebody got it here. Oh, Elizabeth Scott, that is such a good guess. It does sound like Bird, uh, but it's not. Um, It is actually um, a piece that for a long time was ascribed to a musician named Orlando Gibbons, who was famous as one of the early organist choir masters at Westminster Abbey. Uh, but it actually is by a guy with the unlikely name of Henry Loosemore. And he was for about 40 years, um, the organist choir master at King's College, Cambridge back in the 17th century. And the piece of music is called, O oh Lord, Increase Our Faith. And these are the words, O oh Lord, increase our faith, strengthen us, and confirm us in thy true faith. Endue us with wisdom, charity, chastity, and patience in all our adversity. Sweet Jesus, say amen." Well, you can see how that fits right in with what we've been talking about um, with many of those virtues that are named in the piece and this whole idea of increasing our faith. So um, we're gonna go ahead and jump right in. And uh, remember, uh, it is so important to remember the context in which this book was written. England in wartime in 1942, this part of the book, where England is still being bombed. There's severe rationing. uh, The war is not, uh, the tide is not turned. Things are looking bad for the British. There is hopelessness everywhere. And part of the reason Mere Christianity was so popular is a lot of people thought they were getting ready to meet their maker, so they better get their house in order. So it's an urgent question. Uh, just in that same old adage, there are no atheists in foxholes. Uh, there are not a lot of atheists um, in England during World War II. So Lewis started this off uh, with Uh, what could be observed from the universe about right and wrong and thought that that was so important that people needed to think about what the purpose of their life was, that that was the best entry point to getting people to actually start thinking about the Christian faith. And he talks about the law of human nature, uh, that we know how we ought to behave, and yet we don't do it. Unlike rocks that have gravity act upon them, and they have no choice. As humans, we do have a choice and we often fail to do the right thing. So the second book, Lewis talks about what Christians believe, what basic mere Christianity is. And he talks about the fact that there was any kind of standard of good and evil to him was one of the main clues that there had to be some kind of God. And he uses the analogy of an invasion that the world is enemy occupied territory, That Christianity is the story of how the rightful king is landed in disguise and calling us to take part in a campaign of sabotage. And that when we go to church, we're actually listening in for our orders about how we can upset the schemes of the enemy. He goes on to talk about God and free will, the quest for happiness outside of God, and how shocking the things that Jesus said were that he was the being from outside the world who made the world. And then Lewis talks about the uh, thing that is so often said by people who are not Christians that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good teacher. And Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say that people, a man who said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher if he was merely a man. He would either be a lunatic or the devil of hell or a liar. And Lewis, of course, says he believes that he is exactly who he says. He is the son of God. And then Lewis moves on to talk about that Jesus did not come just to teach, although that was important, but that he really came to die, that he was born to die, to give his life as an atoning sacrifice on the cross, to open the way for us to be reconciled to God. And that through that atonement um, and through our faith, we are able in this mysterious and mystical way to have that God life planted in us, that Christ life that makes us into a different kind of being. So Lewis talks about the great paradox of the Christian life, therefore my beloved as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that same quotation is going to show up in our chapter tonight, believe it or not. So hold on to that. Lewis then goes on to talk about morality, um, then the first part of this book three, Christian behavior. And just as an aside, in case you haven't noticed, this first chapter about the three parts of morality is so important. If you haven't really chewed on that, I would really encourage you to go back and look at that. Um, we were actually talking about this during clergy lunch this week at St. Philip's and how these three parts of morality are so important for our culture to begin to be able to recover. And it's that idea that it's not morality is not just about whether what you're doing hurts anyone else. So often you hear people say, I can do what I please so long as it doesn't bother or affect anyone else. But uh, there, of course, is that great line from John Dunn, uh, famous metaphysical poet, but also the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral and Anglican priest, no man is an island. And Lewis would wholeheartedly agree with that. You would say certainly fair play and harmony between and among individuals is an important aspect of morality, but so is the harmony and the tidiness within each individual, the moral fiber of each individual. And then lastly, the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man was made for. If you believe that you were created by God in his image with gifts that are to be used for his glory, then you are not your own to decide what you want to do. You are uh, someone else's. And because of that, that means that you need to consult that someone else uh, about his views of what your life is all about. So a couple of important implications of this. One is that we need to re-engage the truth and beauty of God's law as expressed in Psalm 19. And it was quite lovely that at St. Philip's, our sermon this past week from Andrew O'Dell actually was on Psalm 19 about this whole idea of the commandments and the beauty of them. The second implication is that we as Christians need to be the ones who are ministers of reconciliation. We don't need to expect the broken culture and the broken people and the broken culture to want to come and try to build bridges to us. It's much easier for them just to reject us. The people that are proclaiming loudly that identity and personal morality are constructs that are solely the purview of the individual. You are your own creator and responsible to no one except yourself. And your highest good is to create and speak your truth. They are not interested in building a bridge to us, but we can build bridges to them. We are the ones who know the love of Jesus Christ. We are the ones that know the salvation and joy that is in Jesus. And so we're the ones that need to be about taking the initiative to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So the next chapter is about those cardinal virtues, those old fashioned words we've been talking about, prudence or wisdom, temperance, justice, fortitude, uh, all those things that are uh, given short shrift today, but the things that actually make for a life well-lived. When you persevere in trying to develop those virtues, that is what develops character. The next chapter, chapter three, is on social morality and one so unbelievably relevant right now. And what Lewis is trying to get across is that Jesus did not come with a political program. He did not come with a policy for applying do unto others as you would have them do unto you at the governmental and societal level. And that if you look at what scripture says, most of us would find that a Christian society, there might be parts we would like, but there'd be parts that we don't like. And what Lewis says is that we need to not focus so much on those macro things, just as Jesus did not focus on the uh, horrible immorality of much of the Roman empire and its edicts, but instead Jesus focused on individuals proclaiming the kingdom of God and trying to draw people into it. And the way that the Christians loved each other was so compelling that people from the culture couldn't stay away from them and were drawn into their fold. And he concludes by saying, I cannot learn to love my neighbor until I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. And so, as I warned you, we're driven on to something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters, for the longest way round is the shortest way home. And what Lewis is trying to say here is that our growing and our faith and our understanding of scripture, that's where we are going to begin to be world changers. The fourth chapter, um, I said before, we could sort of sum up is Jesus good, Freud bad. Uh, he basically uh, goes on a tirade about Freud and how his worldview has infiltrated so many things, even though it is a worldview that does not stand up to any kind of rigorous examination. He also gives us a wonderful discourse about why judging others is wrong, and that God alone is the one who can judge because God judges uh, seeing everything that is in the man's heart, all those things that we cannot see. Lewis also talks about the importance of choices, that every little choice we make, we are turning the central part of us into something a little different from what it was before, something that is more like Christ or less like Christ. And just again, a plug for the PBS program, The Question of God in that book, if you're scuba diving, um, I really highly recommend that for you. Um, The fifth book, uh, fifth chapter on sexual morality, uh, Lewis is quite firm here in a way that the church might learn from that it is quite clear that the unanimous witness of the scripture says that the old Christian rule is either marriage between one man and one woman with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. That is what this witness of the scriptures is. And the cultural view of sexuality is all mixed up about this. And it wants to say we are the human animal and to be really authentic and to live into our identity and to speak our truth We need to just follow our sexual instincts with no hang ups, no holding back, no matter what we might want to do. But Lewis says, no, 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 no. Scripture tells us that we may not do that, that we belong to another, and that marriage uh, between a man and a woman is the only expression, the only context for that expression of sexuality. He then talks about three reasons chastity is difficult, wrong thinking from our culture, uh, a sense of futility that we're so surrounded uh, by things to incite lust that there's no way we can fight it off, um, and then the whole repression versus suppression idea. But Lewis says, of course, that scripture tells us to resist the devil, that we are to suppress temptations that we know are bad for us. And This is so important um, that Christians hold to this teaching and that we train people up. This is one of those areas where uh, the church sometimes has been embarrassed to go there. um, And that is to the detriment of our young people. Lewis then in chapter six talks about Christian marriage uh, and what a beautiful and wonderful thing that is. The whole idea of what it means to be one flesh the beauty of that, and that the marriage is for life. And he says that part of this is because of justice and promise keeping that we make vows in these wedding ceremonies. We make vows that are nothing to do with feelings. They are vows to honor, they are vows to do actions for the person that we are marrying, but there are no vows in the Anglican wedding liturgy about feelings. So it is very important that we realize that we have been sold a bill of goods by the culture, that everything is about feelings. And if you're not feeling it anymore, you should go and find someone else to be in relationship with, where you will feel so wonderful about everything. Lewis says, no, 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 Christian marriage is about commitment. And it's great that there are feelings of love, but that those feelings cannot be our guide. He then goes on to talk about loving in scripture is not described as being about feelings. It is actually a choice and an act of will. I'm actually preaching about this this Sunday because it's the lectionary passage, but our culture really has misunderstood this, and we are all about this feeling and love, our self-actualization, and if it's If it's not working for me anymore, too bad about you because I am the center of the universe. It is all about me and what I want and I want something else. So therefore you are out and I'm gonna find a different partner. And part of the myth that goes along with this is this myth of the perfect partner that there's somebody out there that if you just find that person it's like the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle. When you get it, suddenly there'll be a beautiful picture and everything will be just right. And of course, no person can do that. And if you think you found that person and then all of a sudden they, they are not making you happy in the way that you want to be happy, then obviously you, you've picked the wrong person. So the sooner you can get out of that and get the right one, the better off you are. And our culture is bought into that and it has caused havoc uh, in families and the culture and everywhere else. Um, Lewis also talks about that Christian marriage and civil marriage are not the same thing. And then he talks about uh, headship and complementarity and mutual submission, other topics that are not very popular. He then goes on to talk about forgiveness Uh, He says that might be even more unpopular than chastity. It sounds good till you've actually got someone to forgive. And then he uses the analogy of how we feel about ourselves as a good example of how to love the sinner but hate the sin. And he talks about that having an eternal perspective is really important. And he says the problem when we fail to forgive is that we create a state of being that is like hell, that I think unfortunately bears a lot of resemblance to the culture we live in today. Lewis describes it this way, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance and resentment. Everyone wishes everyone else's discrediting, demotion and ruin. Sounds like the nightly news. Uh, We are very much in that place. And we as Christians, by practicing radical forgiveness can shine like stars in the midst of that darkness. So that chapter, uh, we talked uh, just at the end of it about that great quotation attributed to Nelson Mandela. Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. So chapter eight is on the great sin of pride, the one way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the apple, uh, that pride is really the center of Christian morality. As Lewis says, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was the sin of the Pharisees, um, self-righteous religious pride, is the sin that Jesus calls out more than anything else. Lewis also talks about how pride is essentially competitive, that we may feel pretty good about something and not be overly drunk with pride, but when we want to start feeling superior to others because we've got bigger or better or whatever it might be, that is the slippery slope where things really fall apart. Uh, He also talks about several areas of pride that are healthy pride, Um, being praised uh, in the correct context, being proud of someone in the correct context, and then thinking about God's character. He also says that we have adopted a wrong image of humility, one that's sort of a smarmy, greasy kind of idea of people that are, oh, I'm just a worm, I'm just a worm, little poor pitiful me, I'm no good. And Lewis says, no, 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 no. Humility, somebody who's humble will seem like a cheerful, intelligent chap who takes interest in what you're saying to him. And if you dislike him, it'll be because you're a little envious that he seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. It's that whole idea of being radically committed to serving others and loving others. Uh, Lewis says, we have to understand what pride is and remind ourselves because we're swimming in waters that are dangerous. We have to remember the example of the Pharisees. We have to cultivate. Remember, cultivating is hard work. You have to pull up weeds. You have to dig in the dirt. You have to root out stones. Uh, We have to cultivate self-forgiveness, a servant heart and empathy and love fervently. That is with passionate intensity. Last week, we talked about charity, uh, love in the Christian sense. Again, action, not feelings. Lewis talked about how good and evil both increase at compound interest. And that's why those little decisions and choices are so important. And that Christian love either toward God or other people is an affair of the will. And he says, we have to choose to love. It is the other side of the coin from embracing the pride and narcissism rampant in our culture. We have to reject feelings as the only basis for reality and loving relationships. And we've got to get a biblical understanding of the gold rule. So often we think the golden rule is don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. But Lewis says, no, no, no. It is a proactive considering of others. And the message I think gets this right. Uh, They translate this verse as here is a simple rule of thumb guide to behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you and then grab the initiative and go and do it for them. Add up God's law and the prophets and this is what you get. And I think there is a deep truth there particularly that part about taking the initiative because when we begin to do that it gets the culture's attention. And then also that whole focus on Jesus's words about love being the mark of the Christian. And of course, the obverse of that is that if we are full of hate, then people will completely discount the gospel. And then the last chapter we talked about is the one on hope. Hope is one of the theological virtues. There's a great Emily Dickinson poem Um, that I would commend to you if you are snorkeling or scuba diving. is called Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Uh, It is a great poem to think about hope. People cannot live without hope. Part of the reason this pandemic has been so difficult is that virtually everything that people had to look forward to has been removed from their lives and that abandonment of hope leads to despair. And Lewis talks about how important it is that we think about the hope that we have of eternal life with Jesus. And that the more we understand that that's our destiny, the more we will be committed to trying to make this world better. He says the people who converted the Roman empire, the people who helped abolish the slave trade, all these people that left their mark on the earth as Christians did those things about society because they had such a strong belief in their eternal life with Christ. He has this great quotation, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And this is that whole problem that we have when we're trying to build heaven on earth, build the just society, all those kinds of things, which sounds so noble, if we're not doing it with the gospel first, we are doomed to failure. He then goes on to talk about longings, a topic dear to Lewis's heart, that word zenzucht we've talked about in other classes um, that Lewis sees as one of the chief uh, things that distinguishes us as humans and these longings that exist in us that nothing that we experience in this world seems to be able to satisfy. And he says, that is a good sign that we are made for another world. And he says there are three ways that we respond to these longings. One is the fool's way where nothing ever satisfies us. You keep pursuing the most expensive holiday or another woman or the greatest sports car, whatever it might be, thinking that eventually that longing will be satisfied, that at the last you will have found the real thing that life is about. And of course that just leads people to spend their lives trotting from one thing to another, never satisfied. The second wrong response is the disillusioned man. The one who says there's no such thing as real happiness and he just sets a low bar and uh, it's kind of like J. Alfred Prufrock, T.S. Eliot's poem, measuring out his life in coffee spoons. And then Lewis says the Christian way is to understand that if we have a desire, there's something to satisfy it. And that when we hunger and thirst for that beauty that we wanna enter into, that is the beauty of God's kingdom that is offered to us in relationship with Christ. All these things on earth are types and shadows and it is our job to keep alive that desire for our true country, on um, that country of heaven, uh, where we will be with Christ forever. So a couple of implications from that. Don't let despair take root in your life. We are surrounded with it in our culture. It is rampant. As Christians, we must be the people who are filled with hope and optimism. And related to that, we must flee from complaining and awfulizing. Uh, As scripture says, do everything. That doesn't say do some things or only on alternate Tuesdays but do everything without complaining or arguing. Christians who complain and talk about how terrible things are, don't proclaim the truth and beauty of the goodness of Jesus and the kingdom of God. We must flee like we're running from a burning building. And we need to cultivate that eternal perspective and express gratitude. Hebrews 11 is such a great chapter on this. Uh, if you're snorkeling or scuba diving, please read that and look for all of those parts about being strangers and exiles on the earth, seeking a homeland, looking for another country, the city not made by hands. It is beautiful. And that brings us to tonight's two chapters on faith. And Lewis here talks first about faith uh, in the sense of belief. And he says, the word faith seems to be used by Christians in two senses. And the first sense, it means simply belief, accepting or regarding as true, the doctrines of Christianity. I used to ask how on earth it can be a virtue. What is there moral or immoral about believing or not believing a set of statements? Obviously, I used to say a sane man accepts or rejects any statement, not because he wants or doesn't want to, but because the evidence seems to him good or bad. If he was mistaken about the goodness or badness of the evidence, that would not mean he was a bad man, but only that he was not very clever. And if he thought the evidence bad, but tried to force himself to believe in spite of it, that would be merely stupid. I was assuming that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true, until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that is not so. Can I get an amen to that? So he goes on to talk about reason versus emotion. For example, my reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious. But that does not alter the fact that when they have me down on the table and clap their horrible mask over my face, childish panic begins inside me. I start thinking I'm going to choke and I'm afraid they will start cutting on me before I'm properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason that is causing me to lose my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination and emotions. The battle is between faith and reason on the one side and emotion and imagination on the other. A man knows on perfectly good evidence that a pretty girl of his acquaintance is a liar and cannot sorry, cannot be trusted and ought not to be trusted. But when he finds himself with her, his mind loses his faith in that. And he starts thinking, perhaps she'll be different this time. And once more makes a fool of himself and tells her something he ought not to have told her. His senses and emotions have destroyed his faith in what he really knows to be true. Or take a boy learning to swim. His reason knows perfectly well that an unsupported human body will not necessarily sink in water. He's seen dozens of people float and swim, but the whole question is whether he'll be able to go on believing this when the instructor takes away his hand and leaves him unsupported in the water or whether he will suddenly cease to believe it and get in a fright and go down. Now, just the same thing happens about Christianity. I'm not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him the weight of the evidence is against it. That is not the faith, not the point at which faith comes in. He then goes on to talk about what he calls the blitz on belief. But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of the evidence is for it, that is for Christianity. I can tell that man what's going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there is bad news or when he is in trouble, or is living among a lot of other people who do not believe it. And all at once his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief or else there will come a moment when he wants a woman or wants to tell a lie or feels very pleased with himself or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that is not perfectly fair. Some moment in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz. I am not talking of moments at which any real new reasons against Christianity turn up. Those have to be faced, and that's a different matter. I'm talking about moments when a mere mood rises up against it. Faith, in the sense which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Let me repeat that. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. So we must train the habit of faith. The first step is to recognize the fact that your moods do change. The next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who'd lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument do not most people simply drift away?" Which leads us to fighting temptation. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. The main thing we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues is that we fail. If there was any idea that God had set us a sort of exam and we might get good marks by deserving them, that has to be wiped out. If there was any idea of a sort of bargain, any idea we could perform our side of the contract and thus put God in our debts so it was up to him in mere justice to perform his side, that has to be wiped out. God has been waiting for the moment at which you discover there is no question of earning a pass mark in this exam or putting him in your debt. Then comes another discovery. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense his own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, it is like a small child going to its father and saying, daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course the father does and he's pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper but only an idiot would think the father is sixpence to the good. When a man has made these two discoveries, God can really get to work. It is after this that real life begins. The man is awake now. We can go on to talk of faith and the second sense. Now, what God cares about is not exactly our actions. What he cares about is that we should be creatures of a certain kind or quality, the kind of creatures he intended us to be, creatures related to himself in a certain way. If you are right with him, you will inevitably be right with all your fellow creatures just as if all the spokes of a wheel are fitted rightly into the hub and the rim they are bound to be in the right positions to one another. As long as a man is thinking of God as an examiner or the opposite party in a sort of bargain, as long as he's thinking of claims and counterclaims between himself and God, he is nowhere near right relation to him. Now, we cannot discover our failure to keep God's law except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, though, whatever we say, there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we shall succeed in being completely good. Thus, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this. I can't. A man who starts anxiously watching to see whether he's going to sleep is very likely to remain wide awake. As well, the thing I'm talking about now may not happen to everyone in a sudden flash as it did to St. Paul or John Bunyan. It may be so gradual that no one could ever point to a particular hour or even a particular year. And what matters is the nature of the change itself, not how we feel while it is happening. It is the change from being confident about our own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and leave it to God. The sense in which a Christian leaves it to God is that he puts all his trust in Christ, Trust that Christ will somehow share with him the perfect human obedience, which he carried out from his birth to his crucifixion, that Christ will make the man more like himself and in a sense, make good his deficiencies. In Christian language, he will share his sonship with us, will make us like himself, sons of God. If you like to put it that way, Christ offers something for nothing. He even offers everything for nothing. In a sense, the whole Christian life consists in accepting that very remarkable offer. But the difficulty is to reach the point of recognizing that all we have done and can do is nothing. What we should have liked would be for God to count our good points and ignore our bad ones. Again, in a sense, you may say that no temptation is ever overcome until we stop trying to overcome it, throw up the sponge. But then you could not stop trying in the right way and for the right reason until you had tried your very hardest. And in yet another sense, handing everything over to Christ does not mean that you stop trying. To trust him means trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice, thus, If you have really handed yourself over to Christ, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing those things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because the first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. Christians have often disputed as to whether what leads the Christian home to heaven is good actions or faith in Christ. I have no right really to speak on such a difficult question, but it does seem to me like asking which blade and a pair of scissors is most necessary. A serious moral effort is the only thing that will bring you to the point where you throw up the sponge. Faith in Christ is the only thing to save you from despair at that point. And out of that faith in him, good actions must inevitably come. There are two parodies of the truth, which different sets of Christians have in the past been accused by other Christians of believing. Perhaps they may make the truth clearer. One set were accused of saying, good actions are all that matters. The best good action is charity. The best kind of charity is giving money. The best thing to give money to is the church. So hand us over 10,000 pounds and we'll see you through to heaven. The answer to that nonsense, of course, is that would be that good actions done for that motive, done with the idea that heaven can be bought, would not be good actions at all, but only commercial speculations. The other set were accused of saying, faith is all that matters. Consequently, if you have faith, it doesn't matter what you do. Send away, my lad and have a good time. And Christ will see that it makes no difference in the end. The answer to that nonsense is that if what you call your faith in Christ does not involve taking the slightest notice of what he says, then it is not faith at all. Not faith or trust in him, but only intellectual acceptance of some theory about him. The Bible really seems to clinch the matter when it puts the two things together in one amazing sentence. it comes what we just saw earlier tonight the first half is work out your own salvation with fear and trembling which looks as if everything depended on us and our good actions but the second half goes on for it is god who worketh in you which looks as if god did everything and we nothing i am afraid that is the sort of thing we come up against in christianity i'm puzzled but i'm not surprised you see, we are now trying to understand and to separate separate into watertight compartments what exactly God does and what man does when God and man are working together. And of course, we begin by thinking it is like two men working together so that you could say, he did this bit and I did that bit. But this way of thinking breaks down. God is not like that. God is inside you as well as outside. Even if we could understand who did what, I do not think human language could properly express it. I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on out of all of that into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of those things, except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full with what we should call goodness as a mirror is filled with light. But they do not call it goodness. They do not call it anything. They are not thinking of it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. But this is near the stage where the road passes over the realm of our world. No one's eyes can see very far beyond that. Lots of people's eyes can see further than mine. And this is that whole glorious idea in Hebrews 11 of that far country, that beautiful country, um, that new heaven and new earth uh, where Jesus is the light, uh, where all of us are around his throne. And all of that is described beautifully in Revelation 21, which I would commend to you. So, several implications from uh, these chapters on faith. First, keep watch, keep watch that is active, proactive, urgent, like a watchman on a tower waiting for the attack uh, and wanting to protect his people. Keep watch to avoid being seduced by our culture's emphasis on feelings as the best guide to life. This is so very important. And a great scripture verse about this that I would highly suggest committing to memory is from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. This is that whole idea that we talked about earlier in this chapter of holding before you every day the truths of the Christian faith, scripture, being in worship, being in real fellowship, because when you do that, you are trying to trust in the Lord and not leaning on your feelings. And that leads right into feed your mind and heart on scripture and the core truths of the Christian faith every day, not just on Sundays. And as, uh, Jesus tells us in that beautiful verse in John's gospel, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And elsewhere, Jesus says he will lead you into the truth. And this is so important. Um, And we need to be fed on food that nourishes. Thirdly, actively resist the devil and temptation. Sometimes we just want to do like that old comedian Flip Wilson said, give in, and then just say, well, the devil made me do it. But that is not what scripture says. We say, It says that we are to submit ourselves. We don't like that, but we are to do it. Submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Fourthly, acknowledge your helplessness and utter dependence on Christ. We've been talking about this with the whole idea of what sanctification means, not thinking that you're more holy, but realizing how utterly dependent you are on Jesus. And Jesus says this so beautifully in John 15 I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not apart from me, you can do kind of okay, or you can do a few things that are good. Apart from me, you can do nothing, nada. Fifthly, cultivate a vibrant faith that issues forth and works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And last but not least, every day, every moment, if you can, remember your own true country, that land that God has made you for. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And my my friends, that is good news. Let's close by saying together this passage about submitting and losing our life that we might find that life that Christ longs to give us. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of faith. Lord, we thank you that it is only in being utterly dependent on you and acknowledging and understanding our own bankruptcy and inability to do what is right, that it is only when we get to that point that we understand the depth of your love for us and begin living into faith and the things of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, that you would help us not to rely on ourselves and not to buy into the lies of our culture, but that we would live in such a way that our hearts are pointed toward our true country, where we will live with you eternally. For we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So uh, we have just a few minutes. If anybody has any questions or comments, there's a lot to chew on out of this chapter tonight. Uh, a lot to think about in terms of habits. Uh, But if you have a question or a comment, uh, please unmute yourself and chime in, or if you would prefer to send me a chat, uh, that is perfectly fine as well. It's also perfectly fine if you don't have any comments, you've been listening very patiently for a long time. Brian. Yes, sir. I have been wondering for a long time,